you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we've been going through the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57, we're going to go through the end of the chapter today. Our main, our main text we're going to focus on is going to be Zechariah's prophecy, which starts in verse 67, but um, some of what happens in the beginning here uh, with the birth of John the Baptist correlates a lot with what happens next week in Luke chapter 2 in the birth of Christ. So I'm going to leave some of those explanations and things for next week. But the thing I want us to focus on this morning is that the mercy of God has brought us salvation. The mercy of God has brought us salvation so that we would serve Him without fear. The mercy of God has brought us salvation so that we would serve Him without fear. The order of this is important, and the order of this is a lot of what we're going to talk about this morning. The mercy of God has brought us salvation so that we would serve Him without fear. Let's read our passage this morning from Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 57, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, as I mentioned. Luke 1, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins." Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What an amazing story as we continue on in in this progression of what has been happening so far in the beginning of this gospel of Luke where the angel visits Zechariah in the temple and says, you're going to have a son. I know you're old and I know your wife's old, but you're going to have a son. And this is not unusual for God to work this way. But then Zechariah responds, you know, are are you sure? How how can I be sure of this? Um, I'm old and my wife's old. 
how can I be sure that this is going to happen? And the angel kind of gets mad and is like, dude, I'm standing here in the temple. You're supposed to be the only one in the temple, and I'm here with you, which should be a red flag saying, this is unique, and you should believe what I'm saying. But apparently, Zechariah didn't fully believe what the angel had to say, and so Zechariah had his mouth shut. He asked for a sign, and he got the sign, but the sign was not probably what he wanted. Maybe it's what his wife wanted, you know, because then he wasn't going to just blab on all day about whatever he wanted to talk about. I don't know. Um, but he, uh, his mouth is closed, and apparently he can't hear either because as we read here in our passage this morning, they had to make signs to him to try and communicate with him. So not only could he not speak, he apparently couldn't hear also. And so you have him in this position, and then you have the angel visiting Mary. And the angel visits Mary and says, you're going to have a son. And, and he's going to be even more important than the other visit that I had earlier, talking about this other son that was going to be born. This, this other son, John, who he's going to be called, of your relative Elizabeth and Zechariah, he's going to be great, and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. But your son is going to be the son of God. He is going to be son of the Most High. He is going to be who we have been waiting for all this time. God is going to fulfill His promises through Christ. And He's going to use John the Baptist to prepare the way for that. And so Mary visits Elizabeth. We looked at last week and has the song that she sings, a song of truth, a song of so much information and saying, you, God, you care about the humble. You care about the low. You care about those who no one else cares about. You have done what no one else thought you were going to do. We didn't think that you cared about us. Sometimes there were things that happened in the life of Israel and in the life of us normal people who didn't have a high-class job, who didn't have all the money in the world, who weren't of renown, who didn't come from this line of people that was so important. But you have looked on us, and we being your servants, you've, you've offered salvation to us. You have lifted us up out of our lowly estate. And then you have now the fulfilling of the message that Gabriel gave to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and that's where we pick up in verse 57 as we read. And she, time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And, and a few of these things, I'm going to read through this again and, and as I mentioned before, I, I just want us to sort of have this picture in mind for next week, because the things that happen in verses 57 through 66 have so much similarity with what happens in the beginning of the gospel of Luke chapter 2 and the story of Christmas, as we'll go through next week. So many comparisons and so many things that are so similar, so many words that are used that are the same. I want this to kind of be on your mind. Verse 58, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. They heard the news that she was going to have a son, and it's amazing. But I wonder if they were rejoicing because Elizabeth told them to rejoice with her. Because Elizabeth said, I have received mercy from the Lord. Or if they just simply saw from a distance and said, Wow, this old lady is now having a son, and God is working a great thing. And they rejoiced. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, so they did what they were supposed to do as good Jews. 
And they would have called him Zechariah, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. So clearly, Zechariah had communicated well to Elizabeth that the angel said, you're going to name him John. And so when it came time to name him, Zechariah still can't speak. And so he can't say what he needs to say. And so they asked the mom, hey, so what's going to happen here? Are you going to name him after his father? And she says, no. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. This doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Why would you call him John? And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Amazing. The last words that we have from Zechariah were words of disbelief, apparently. And now he is showing that he believes what has happened. Clearly, you would have to. I mean, he knew he was an old man, and he got his wife pregnant, even though they were both advanced in years, and this miracle was happening. And so clearly, he had to believe at this point. And he shows, even though his last words that he communicated audibly were of disbelief, he says, his name is going to be John. I do believe, right? This is what, this is what he writes down anyways. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And so what does he do when he audibly can speak again? The first thing he does, he blesses God. And so fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So God uses these unique circumstances to communicate to his people that something new and something fresh is happening. There's something going on here that is quite unusual, that is quite unique. And they, all the people who heard about it, all, all the surrounding neighbors, the whole town was abuzz talking about what was going on and how it was amazing that apparently the last time Zechariah was in the temple, his mouth was shut. And then the next time they bring their child to Jerusalem to circumcise him on the eighth day, oh, amazingly, he now can talk again. Like, what is going on here? This, this is, these things are crazy, but they have a purpose here. And they wonder what in the world is happening here. Who is this child going to be? Clearly God is doing something. And they could not deny that the hand of the Lord was with him. And so then we have this prophecy of Zechariah. And there are a lot of similarities that we have. You can look back on this prophecy of Zechariah and look at what Mary's song was and see how they're similar sort of in structure and style. Clearly, these are um, Israelites who are proclaiming these things. The structure that they have are similar to the Psalms. But I want to focus on a few things that we've already kind of seen a little bit talking about mercy but I want to focus on, again, how I started this morning, that the mercy of God has brought us salvation so that we would serve Him without fear. And so we're going to see this first off. I'm going to read verses 67 through 72, talking about the mercy of God. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, just to, another quick aside, remember we had this last week and really the week before? that John the Baptist was going to be filled with the Spirit from the womb, that Mary was the Spirit, filled with the Spirit and prophesied, that Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit, came upon her, and whenever she heard the greeting of Mary was, wow, who am I that, that the mother of my Lord would come to visit me? 
And then we have Zechariah here, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is going to continue to be a theme all throughout the Gospel of Luke. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant." When it comes to the idea of mercy, and even maybe a way to get us to think about this is when you pray. When you pray, what do you tend to naturally pray about? For myself, maybe I should just speak for myself. When I tend to pray, my immediate thoughts are almost always my circumstances that surround me in the immediate context. I usually think small picture. I think of me and my life and my family and my circumstances, and my job, and what's happening all around me, which is like, you know, I don't know, one seven billionth of the people in the world, right? I mean, like, there's this very small, you know, a very small cloud of influence, a very small cloud of people. And I tend to think of the here and now also. I think of the immediate and time as well what is going to happen in the next day, what is going to happen the rest of today, what is going to happen next week, what, what has just happened yesterday. I, I, I tend to have this framework where I think of, God, please give me mercy. God, please show me grace and mercy right now in this moment for these circumstances that surround me. Usually I think small, naturally. Our prayers can be often short-sighted. And so we've got to train ourselves to think of the big picture. And this is some of what we hear in this beginning of Zechariah's prophecy. There are hints of what God has done in the past, but then he's also prophesying. So he is saying these things are also going to happen in the future. And so you kind of wonder because he uses the past tense. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He has. He, he, he has worked in the Old Testament among His people. He has done great things in history past for His people. But don't just think of this as Zechariah looking back. Think of it as him looking to the future and, and thinking about what God is working right now and for the next 30 plus years till we get to Jesus's ministry and we get to Jesus on the cross and we get to Jesus's death and resurrection. And he's thinking about these things filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is guiding him to not just look at the past, but also to look to the future. And so when I tend to have the natural tendency to look at my immediate here and now the people that I'm surrounded with, I don't think about the past and what God has done, and I don't think about the future and what I know He will continue to do. And so we've got to train ourselves to remind ourselves of God's mercy toward us. For He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Jesus still hasn't been born yet. Chronologically, 
if we understand Zechariah to prophesy after John the Baptist's birth, and if we take that in step with Jesus isn't born yet till Luke chapter 2, he is saying these things are going to happen. Has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So what is this holy covenant? Maybe going back to the beginning, maybe if you even read verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What is the promise? What is this covenant? What is this thing that has been given to Abraham? All the way back in Genesis 12, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 12, the first book of the Bible, only 12 chapters in, we have God choosing this man and his family for a particular work, for something special to happen through him. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what is this promise? The promise was to Abraham and to his offspring that he was going to bless Abraham and his offspring. He was going to turn them into a great nation. But it wasn't just that he was going to turn Israel into a great nation, that he was going to turn the descendants of Abraham into a great nation. It was that all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And so, when you think about who this promise to Abraham was for, this promise to Abraham was not just for the physical descendants of Abraham. This was not just for Israel. This was not just for the Jews. It did begin with the Jews, but it was not just for the Jews. It's for all of us. This mercy is for more than just Israel. And so when you look back and you say, He has begun this work, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's, he has offered salvation for us in the house of His servant David. He promised this long ago. And what was, he, what was it all a promise for? That, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show Mercy, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. One of the songs that we sang said, By thine all-sufficient merit. When you think of the word mercy, hopefully you think of, this is something that I don't deserve. When, when you're at someone's mercy, that means they're making the decision and you're just kind of sitting there waiting to see what happens. There's no influence that you have. When you're at the mercy of someone else, you're stuck hoping, praying, trusting. Because there's nothing else that you can do. You have no part to play in influencing that person's decision. And isn't that a difficult place to be? The idea of mercy is that it is... It is the decision of someone else 
that affects me. That it's not anything that I can do or that I have done, but it's simply a matter of whatever they choose to happen. By thine all-sufficient merit. So not our merit. This isn't something that we've earned. And what this mercy is, is that we are delivered. That we are saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. It's deliverance from what we actually do deserve. When you think of mercy, I hope that we can have this picture of that when I, when I think about God's mercy toward me, that God has been merciful toward me, and it's not because I've done something to deserve it. It's not that I've done enough good things for God to say, well, I mean, you know, he's close enough. I'll just lift him up the rest of the way. When we think of mercy, we have to think of the fact that we bring nothing to the table and that our position now before God is all a choice and an act of His to be kind and merciful to us. When it comes to the gospel, it's easy for our society, it's easy for us as individuals to think about, again, going back to the whole short-sighted idea. It's easy for me to think about what can I do to be in God's good favor? What can I do to earn a place where God loves me and accepts me? It's easy for me to, to bend my mind toward that because naturally, most of the things in this world are things that you like earn for yourself. When you work a job, like you actually have to work the job, otherwise you'll get fired. And, and so when you work, they give you money. Because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to work. And, and you produce something or you offer a service and then they give you money for it. Like this is usually how, you know, this idea works. So, so you work for something and then you get what you deserve from that. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to our spiritual selves, we have to realize that we only bring negative stuff to the table. We only bring darkness and death to the table. We only bring sin to the table. We don't bring anything in and of ourselves that God says, oh yeah, well that was something good. No. The position that we are in is fully at the mercy of God. And so when I think about sometimes, and, 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 I, and I have a natural tendency to go to the place of I've done something to deserve this. This is what we call religion. This is what we call earning our way. This is what we call all the works that we think we're supposed to do that we think are going to get us in the right spot with God and for Him to make a good decision on our behalf. I've got all these witnesses that say, yeah, look at all the good things Stephen has done. And I think to myself, oh, look at all the good things that I've done. Usually I have a lot more than other people have to say, but, um, you know, like this is what I'm, I, I typically tend to do. And that's what religion says is you, you've got to earn your way. You've got, to, you've got to play a part in that process. And then sometimes when we misunderstand mercy, it can be the opposite of that and, and the idea of irreligion. It can be the idea of, of license. It can be the idea of God loves me and accepts me because I'm, I'm, 
I'm just worth it naturally. I don't have to do anything to deserve it, but he just loves me, and, and he doesn't have to do anything to show any of that, and I don't have to do anything because of that. We think I'm good just because I think I'm good, and I don't have to earn anything. I, I don't have to work toward anything. But when we think of mercy just in that light, and we don't infuse the gospel into the idea that what we do bring to the table is our sinful selves, that we are in a position where we need salvation, where we need God's mercy, and that the only thing that gets us into that right relationship with God is the salvation offered to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, only then can we understand what it truly means to be a believer, to believe the truth. So we have religion saying, work, work at it, do all the work that's necessary, or do a part of the work. And we have irreligion that says, you're accepted just because. And then we have the gospel that says, you're accepted because Christ paid the price. And there's nothing that you can do to pay a part of that price. There's nothing that you can do to come alongside Christ and say, okay, now it's good enough. Now you're in a spot where God will accept you. The, the common theme of our lives tends to go to one of those two extremes. Well, well, I'm just good enough because I'm a person who, you know, does, is an okay person. Or, or I've done enough good things to merit mercy and salvation. And the gospel comes in and says, no, just know that Christ has done this. And this is what's so interesting. Look in verses 76 through 78. This is such an interesting phrase that's used in the middle of these verses. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. What amazing verses. And the interesting phrase that we have there is that this is the knowledge of salvation. Now, before I confuse this any further, we have to understand that salvation is not simply an understanding in our mind of what the gospel is and what Christ has done for us. But it has to impact and affect our will. It has to be we put ourselves in submission to this knowledge. But it is simply knowledge. We are not the ones who act. God has acted in the past for our salvation. And the good news of Jesus Christ, the whole reason why Luke is writing this book, what we want to talk about day in and day out, week in and week out, as a church who believes this gospel is that we are preaching and proclaiming good news to each other and to everyone else that will have an ear to hear that God has offered us salvation, not because of what we've done, but simply because of what He has done through Christ. And so we are presenting with them facts. We're presenting them with knowledge. So it's not, do this and you will be saved. It's not you're saved just because, it's you are saved 
only because of Christ. And He freely offers this to you because of His mercy. It's, it's knowledge of salvation because it's been done, it's finished, it's complete. This is news to be proclaimed. It's information to understand. The event has already taken place. The work has already been accomplished and done. Repentance then comes afterwards. It comes after. It comes as a product of understanding salvation properly. And what we can do is we can find our rest in thee. Right? Like that's what we sang earlier. Let us find our rest in thee. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, who are, who are bogged down with the constant impression that I've got to do something to earn right standing with God or to keep right standing with God. See, because those are the two things that maybe even as Christians, we don't deal with the fact that we think that we are saved by what we do, but sometimes we turn around and say, well, I've got to act like I have a part in saving myself or in keeping myself saved. And so as Christians, oftentimes that's the trap that we fall into, is I know I don't do anything in the first place to be saved, but I think I've got to do something to remain saved. I think I've got to do something to stay saved, to keep my salvation. This is a lie. And we find our rest in Christ spiritually because He has done it all. He has accomplished everything you need. And from that, then the mercy of God has brought us salvation so that then we would serve Him without fear. So, so we serve Him not because we think it's part of what keeps us right with God or makes us right with God in the first place, but because when we truly understand it, we recognize, wow, what other response could I possibly have? What, what other response could I, could I possibly have but to say, I did not deserve this salvation, yet you freely gave it to me. And so in response, wow, what can I do for a God who has been so gracious and merciful toward a sinner like me, but to give him my entire life because he deserves it? So verses 72 through 75 are a bit of where we see all of these things, and the order is important. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, <clears throat> excuse me, and from the hand of all who hate us. Wait, I skipped back. Let me try this again. Verse 72, that cough really threw me off. <laughs> to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, now notice here the order, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. So just think of sin there. When, when you see enemies, I mean, just simplify it for, for ourselves and think of sin. Being delivered from sin. Then we might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. You've been delivered. We have been delivered. God has shown us mercy. And now, as a result of that, we then serve Him 
and we can serve him without fear. The mercy of God has brought us salvation so that then we would serve him. And we can serve him without fear. We, have, we can serve him knowing, wow, like I, I don't have to be afraid of what will happen to me. I, I know that I'm a child of God and I know that he cares for me. I know that he'll never leave me or forsake me. I, I know that he is constantly by my side. I know that he has given me his spirit as a down payment to show that he is with me and that he will not leave me or forsake me. That he has shown a light in my heart, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'm looking forward to in a couple weeks when Brian Miller's going to preach for us. Um, and, and this is a lot of what he's going to be talking about from Colossians chapter 1 to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We have not known peace. We have known the way of labor and being heavy laden with the burden of sin, with the burden of expectations put on us by this world to do better, to be better, to show ourselves worthy, to try and gain approval from other people and gain approval from God. And the gospel cuts into that mess and it says, Christ has done everything for you. As a result of that, now put your lives in step with the truth of that message. He's done everything, and now He calls you to serve Him from that. And so when you're inclined to think that I've got to do something to earn favor with God, Go back to what mercy really means and go back and look at what he has done in history. Now, he has been merciful to a people who did not deserve it. It's over and over again. That's the example that we get from the Old Testament. That's the example that we get maybe even from Zechariah himself when we first encounter him. This priest of God who is serving in the temple, doing all these things he's supposed to be doing, but maybe just for the split moment, he doesn't believe. He doesn't deserve to receive the truth of the message that this angel is bringing to him. But God is still gracious and merciful even towards him and gives him a son who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And Zechariah turns around and he says, Wow, what amazing things God has done and what amazing things he is going to continue to do as this gospel unfolds as we are able to see how God has worked in history to fulfill His promises in the Old Testament and to offer us a salvation that we did not deserve. And, and I pray for us that we would be a people who stop depending on ourselves and start depending on the Spirit to give us the strength to live in such a way that shows that we are dependent on Him and that we're not dependent on our own strength. We're not dependent on the things of this world, that we're not dependent on our own actions, on our own thoughts, and our own words, but that when we think of mercy, we think that I've not deserved this, but God has shown this to me 
so that I might serve him all the days of my life, and it doesn't matter what happens to me then. It, it doesn't matter the, the trials that come. It doesn't matter the issues that I have to face. It doesn't matter the unknown that 2020 will bring, whether it's a new job or a new state or a new place to worship or a new whatever. Whatever happens, I have confidence in my God who has saved me when I didn't deserve it because He is a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, who's slow to anger, who relents from disaster. He cares enough to make promises and to keep them and to show Himself worthy of our submission, of our service, of our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways in which you have worked, the things you have done to show yourself worthy. God, even just from Genesis 1, we know that you have created all things and you are worthy of worship because we are the created beings, but you were not created. You've given us life and breath. You have offered us salvation. You have given to us salvation because of your great mercy. And so help us to understand the right order of that and that we can't bring anything to this table to be right with you. And that we can't bring anything to the table to stay right with you, but only through the work of your Spirit applying Christ's sacrifice to us. God, we thank you for being able to experience this mercy, being able to experience this salvation, to know it in our minds and to submit ourselves to it in our hearts. And so help us this week when we're tempted to depend on ourselves. Help us to recognize those times and to repent. When we're tempted to think that we're not good enough, help us to think about how Christ was good enough and about who we are in Christ. So God, would you speak to us this week? Would, would your word come alive in us this week? Would the truth of your word penetrate our hardened hearts to this message of mercy and salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.